Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia, and by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information on their latest activities, please click on the links which you can find on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Hello everyone, welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Faiza Zakaria, Assistant Professor of History at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. I'm delighted to have with me today Sherban Han, Assistant Professor of Malay Studies at the National University of Singapore. Prof Han's book, Sovereign Women in a Muslim Kingdom, the Sultanas of Aceh, 1641 to 1699, is a pioneering inquiry into half a century of rule by queens in the early modern Islamic kingdom of Aceh. The book draws on both indigenous texts and European sources to analyse how female rule in Aceh was legitimised. It demonstrates gendered differences in leadership and shows how female rule can be put in a broader context of queenship in history. Banu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's such a pleasure to have you here. So before we start on the book discussion proper, could you tell us a little about yourself and your background and how you came to write this book? My early education was in Singapore. I did my history honours in the history department of the National University of Singapore, continued with the Masters of Arts in the Southern Studies. And then I sort of ventured abroad and I did my advanced Master's in Leiden University, and finally my PhD at Queen Mary University of London. And do you have particular turning points or that led you to come to be interested in the topic of female leadership, which is the main subject of this book? Well, yes, I think it was a very long journey <laughs> <laughs> because after my honours in history, I actually started my career and I taught at the JC. And after that, I decided that, you know, I'd like to pursue my, my studies and not, I did my MA. But after my MA, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do my PhD, but I was reading uh, pre-colonial uh, Southeast Asia, which was something different because in my honesty, I know that I was doing generally uh, European history. So when I was reading pre-colonial Southeast Asia, I was really, really struck by the studies of Anthony Reed, Barbara Ndaya, Leonard Ndaya, who studied on um, pre-colonial Southeast Asia, but also looking at the role of women. So I was quite struck by the idea that women's roles and status in Southeast Asia was was high. And I was very curious about that. And also, I think I was first introduced to the queens. Sort of, there was a preponderance of queens in, in Southeast Asia during that particular period. And yet, they were unknown and nothing much was written about them. 
and sort of the few early readings which I read generally portrayed them in quite a unfavorable light in terms of mm. they were weak and you know there was a decline of the kingdoms especially in Achi. So I was curious enough and I thought I would like to continue to find out you know why and what happened and uh, Anthony Reid I would say would be a mentor to me and uh, he encouraged me to do more on Archie and that was sort of why I more or less focused on this research topic. But in terms of my journey, PhD, I think that was another whole long journey whereby, you know, after my master's, I wanted to do my PhD and of course funding was a huge problem and that was when I met Professor Bluzay from Leiden University and he told me about the TANAP program whereby they would encourage uh, scholars from Asia to go to Leiden and to go to the Hague to look at European sources and of course here Dutch sources and to learn these sources and to write their own history, you know, from the sort of a more autonomous uh, perspective. So I applied and all that and managed to get into the TANAP program and uh, I did my training, got my scholarship, but I did not continue uh, in Leiden. I decided to um, go to Queen Mary and I was offered scholarship at Queen Mary uh, Center of Editing uh, Letters. And so um, there was I, you know, doing my PhD and finishing it. And I think one of the strengths of this book comes up from what you said about sources and the strength of the empirical research and the wide range of sources that you consulted, which includes VOC archives, it also includes travelers' narratives, trade records, archivist manuscripts, such as Bustad Salatin and so on. I was wondering, with such a broad range of sources, what are some of the challenges that you face in tackling them and managing the data? And for manuscript sources, especially, how do we how do we separate the literary from the historical, and how do we uh, approach this to create an, a, a persuasive historical narrative? Like I said, I mean, I was in a way as a result of the Tana program, I was really tasked to do Dutch sources. <laughs> so, anyway, that formed a backbone of my um, PhD thesis. And I think this is where, if you look at sources, the sources have both strengths and limitations. And we need to approach uh, different sources, you know, with a different lens. And in, in some cases, you will read the sources more carefully against the grain and so on and so forth. So for the Dutch sources, the training was tough. You know, it was a year of uh, paleography and transliterating and then uh, translation. So, you know, so I really owe to the Tanak program for that. And of course, the Dutch sources are very rich, you know, is voluminous and very rich and very detailed in terms of recording what took place yeah. in the courts of Aceh. Uh, and of course, other courts as well. So I was concentrating more on the Archimedes court. Mm -hmm. So the kinds of sources for the VOC are correspondences from Batavia to Archie, you know, from the governor general to the residents and the diplomats uh, who stayed in Archie for months on end. And also um, the correspondences from the Dutch governor to the Hiran 17 uh, in Amsterdam. So that formed quite a huge uh, corpus of, of the sources. But besides that, there were also the treaties and letters, uh, translated letters 
you know, in Dutch uh, on the Malay world. But largely, I would use the dachristers of the diplomats and the envoys who were sent to Aceh and where they stayed for like three months or four months. And there they recorded a daily diary uh, of what happened in Aceh and, you know, like audience days and when they go to the court, what happened, the kind of discussions they had with the Sultana on audience days and the Orangkaya and nobility. So that was really, really rich. But of course, that's from a Dutch perspective and it's really centered on the Dutch and the Dutch expertise. And they were very interested on the things that related to them, for example, commerce and treaties and so on and so forth. So we need to approach that with caution as well. We need to look at the the people that they were talking about rather than just what interested them. And uh, you have to read sometimes against the grain, you know, the dark sources. But in terms of the rich details and the vivid descriptions, I think that was really a strength. And, you know, you could gain much from those uh, dark sources. But Dutch sources will give you sort of one perspective. And I think it's very important for us to understand also uh, indigenous sources because indigenous sources will give you the worldviews, the, the kind of normative values about, you know, um, whether they are describing the uh, sultanates as in the court chronicles, the Bustan al-Salatin, for example, or when they talk about, let's say, the exploits of certain sultans, the Hikayat Aceh, for example, you get sort of a rich corpus of material in terms of the symbols, the myths, the worldviews, and so on. So back to your question in terms of how do you separate myths from historical facts? It was a challenge because there were a lot of materials, you know, and different uh, sources. What I really uh, tried to do was to corroborate the different sources. So, of course, Hikayat Aceh, for example, would have lots of mythical stories about, you know, exports of Iskandar Muda, for example, you know, the kind of titles that he had. But there were also, uh, for example, in the Bustan, in a way, what you would call known facts that were also related uh, in these indigenous sources. And these were corroborated by reading Dutch sources. So when these two evidences or these two information were able to be corroborated, then I think you'll be able to stand on firmer ground. So for example, if you talk about the Bustan, okay, the Bustan would mention the Queen as you know very generous, very pious, you know, and of course it was commissioned by royalty, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the writings would appear to be very formulaic, you know, and it would be the same as you know. Uh, the king, Iskandar Tani, and the Sultana, for example. But when you look at the Dutch sources and Dutch sources' uh, description of the Sultana being pious, for example, uh, Troutman would describe the queen, you know, as being a very pious uh, person. She observed the fast that during audience days, you know, during fasting month, she would apologize that, you know, they could not um, serve the Dutch food, you know. And they were invited later, you know, during uh, after breakfast for them to have peace and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So this kind of corroboration, one from the indigenous sources and one from uh, the VOC sources. So you could be able to more or less get so-called the known facts of what happened. I think that you have provided a, a really rich picture about the court of uh, early modern Aceh. And for, for the listeners who may be unfamiliar, could you tell us a little about who are the main players 
if you look at Aceh in the 17th century, Aceh would more or less fit into the model of maritime Southeast Asia, insular Southeast Asia, where Aceh would almost be a entrepot port, you know, where Aceh was very much central in terms of the trading networks north of Aceh, the trading networks with the Asian traders, the Gujaratis, the Arabs, with the Red Sea, uh, and also uh, the Asian merchants, the Chinese merchants, the, the Malay merchants who were trading in Malacca, in Java, Brunei, so on and so forth. So it was part of that global Asian tra trading network. But of course, with uh, after Islamization in the 13th century in Southeast Asia, you know, Kasai and, and Aceh, Aceh would also be seen as a sultanate, as a kingdom which had a kerajaan. And of course, you know, the, uh, the ruler and the ministers more or less adopting the Islamic law and Adat law as well. So it, it was sort of seen as a Muslim sultanate. And of course, Aceh was ruled by sultan and sultanas. But generally from that, the Dutch was, this is where we're able to get quite a lot of the actors who were playing very active roles at court. And these were the nobilities, which we call the, the Pulu Malang, mm -hmm. would be one. And then you have the Orang Kaya, the wealthy nobility, who were also involved in the administration and politics of Aceh. And of course, the ministers themselves. You know, you have the four council ministers who were closely working with the ruler. But of course, besides these two major actors, which I've mentioned, the, the Asian traders and, you know, the, the sultanate, you have the coming of the European companies mm -hmm. uh, in the early part of the 17th century. Uh, you have the EIC and the VOC. So it was very much um, the, the, the three sort of main players uh, interacting, contesting, competing, you know, uh, in sort of the 17th century world of maritime Southeast Asia. Seems like a bustling hub that's sort of embedded in this network of global Asia where you have both Asian as well as European interactions. But it's also interesting that I think, uh, as you mentioned earlier, one of the narratives that you're writing again, so to speak, is this idea of the narrative of decline. So even amid this sort of bustle and the, uh, the activity of the age of commerce, so to speak, this is also not considered Aceh's most prosperous time in some ways and it's and in some ways the the period of the sultanas when was not considered as part of the golden age in and in that sense how do you think this sort of perceptions arise and um, how does your book challenge them the idea of when did the sort of maritime kingdoms you know decline and when did the rise of europe and colonialism place things very much discussed and contested you know in different schools of opinions and so forth but the received view at that time you know in the 17th century was that generally there was already a decline uh, of the maritime kingdoms because of the loss of uh, Banten, Makassar to the European companies and you have uh, the increasing commercial incursions of both uh, the Dutch especially and then of course the EIC and the conquest of Malacca by the Dutch. So that were some of the evidences that we used to illustrate that, you know, 17th century was sort of a crossroad for, for maritime kingdoms in Southeast Asia and that 
shows of the decline of uh, these kingdoms and the rise of uh, Europe. I think there may be a general pattern, and of course, Anthony Reid mentioned about 1680, the loss of us. But I think the individual kingdoms were not that researched in depth to really illustrate the phenomenon of decline. So that was a question that I was very interested in as well. I mean, did Aceh decline? You know? So there is this sort of assumption and received view, but whether or not it declined, I think we need further research. And also the idea that you know, by the late 17th century, Aceh under the Sultanas had lost the vessel states of Herat, Johor, and some of Sumatra West Coast states. So it pointed to the fact that, oh, you know, since the queens were there and, you know, they lost all these territories, so there was a decline of Aceh. So when I read most of the uh, records, um, the VOC records, did not go right up to the end of 17th century, so because the Dutch sort of left Aceh in the 1660s. The EIC tried to more or less establish themselves and tried to establish what, but they were not very successful. But if you look at the travel records of the Europeans, and this is another corpus of sources which I used besides the company records and besides the indigenous records, the travel records for both Asian traders and European traders, they were really describing Aceh in the 1680s. People like Thomas Bowery, William Dampier, they described a rich Aceh. They described an Aceh that had, you know, um, ships in the harbour, that had very buoyant uh, trade, you know. Uh, and there was a network of these private traders and Asian traders. And it told the story of continuation. It told the story of resilience. It told the story of response rather than a dwindling declining port. And actually remained independent until sort of the early part of the 20th century. You know, so it was more of a story of response and resilience and continuity. And based on evidences from these uh, European traders, actually was still a cosmopolitan and still, you know, very thriving port. So when you talk about the queens, generally as well, you need to look at what was the nature of that conquest of Iskandar Muda, I mean, to what extent was he able to control these areas in the first place and the nature of their overlord vessel relation in terms of whether or not they were actually discontinued. Just because sort of, you know, some some of these vessel states sort of turned away from Aceh, it did not necessarily mean that, you know, there was a discontinuity in terms of the interactions and that just because there was loss of territory, there was a decline in terms of the internal uh, power and the royal authority of Aceh. This is also a matter of how you understand decline. You know, what kind of criteria do you use for you to actually describe, you know, something as decline? So generally, I think everybody looked at what you mentioned, it's not in terms of the perceptions of, of these queens. So they were generally deemed as weak because they were seen to have lost territories. They were seen to also be accommodative to, to the Dutch. But I think if you turn the whole idea of golden age, you know, what, what does it mean to have a country to have reached its golden age? Does it mean that you need a very strong ruler with powers and wealth? Do you need conquests? Is that the idea of golden age or is it more the idea of peace the idea of uh, trading uh, hubs 
that was able to be resilient, that was able to respond to the incursions of the VOC, and the ability to sort of still enable Aceh to be a literary center, you know, in that particular. So if you look at the idea of, let's say, style of leadership in terms of peace, in terms of accommodation, and in terms of using moral capital, social capital, soft power, perhaps, what we see today, it does not necessarily mean that it could be a decline or it is ineffective. Indeed, I would argue in my book, just as I argue in my book, that because of the very change of style of leadership, you know, away from conquest, away from this kind of prowess in terms of challenging the different companies, but this accommodation, the signing of treaties, and yet limiting, you know, the, the concessions that were given to the Dutch, uh, that it in a way brought about that peace and that continuity and helped Archie to maintain her independence. Right. you know, in the 17th century. I think we will pause briefly for our sponsor's message and when we come back, we'll discuss the role of queens in greater detail and also delve into the issue of Islam and female authority. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I'm with Sherbanu Han talking about her book, Sovereign Women in a Muslim Kingdom. One of the main characters in this book is Sultana Safiatuddin Shah, who is a major ruler during this period. And she comes across, I think, as someone who is um, gentle and diplomatic, especially when contrasted with the kings who came just before her. How should we read this history in the sense of how much should we attribute these differences in leadership styles to gender and how much to the personality of the, the ruler themselves? That was something that I was really grappling with, you know, when I was writing the thesis and also the book. What I intended to do was really to look at particular case studies, and of course here would be Aceh in the 17th century. Aceh in the 17th century would, of course, be covering the reigns of Sultan Mukamil, Sultan Iskandar Muda, Sultan Iskandar Tani, and then the four Sultanas. That's the whole 17th century Aceh. So what I tried to do was to see what were the changes, what were the continuities in terms of royal elite relations, in terms of administrative style, leadership style, you know, and the kind of policies relating to the internal politics of Aceh and also relating to the European companies. What I had in terms of comparison, uh, basically, was the two uh, kings, her father and her husband, her, her predecessors, and then, of course, her three successors. In, in that sense, there was really a gender element there because looking at sort of predecessor sultans and then the successor sultanas. So when I was looking at the kind of policies, the kind of elite, royalty relations uh, between these two sultans and the queens, there were distinct differences in terms of styles. Uh, because if you look at both, uh, and this evidence in the sources, in both 
the European company sources and also in the indigenous records that you could get Ikai Aceh, for example. It was stated, you know, that there were this kind of cruel punishments that were being meted out on the Orangkaya and also on the people who actually were rivals or challenging, you know, the position of whether it is Sultan Iskandar and also, for example, it was stated in Dutch sources that it was quite rare that there were this kind of debate or kind of discussions during audience days about policy. It was quite rare when Iskandar Muda, for example, would call upon the Orangkaya to come over to sort of make decisions. In fact, audience days themselves were not very regular during Iskandar Muda and Iskandar Tanis period. And these were really Quite different from what the Dutch were reporting during the Sultanas. There were very regular audience days. There were many discussions, you know, about whether or not to buy certain things. Because I think one chapter of my book was really talking about the jewel affair, whereby Iskandar Tani uh, actually ordered thousands of dollars of jewelry. And uh, when the VOC officials came, you know, with the order, he he already died. You know, he just died. It was an unexpected death. So there was a whole long, almost four years of discussion of whether how much to buy and so on and so forth. So there were quite a lot of these episodes in terms of illustrating the kind of leadership style that Sultana Safiya Tudin had. And she was the longest reigning, you know, from 1601 to 1675. So there was quite a lot of information on, on, her, on her reign. So when just looking at this evidence and comparing it, it did look as if there were quite distinct, you know, leadership Styles. Uh, and also, I think another important point of departure, perhaps, would be the way they represented themselves, the way they were describing themselves in the letters. There were more similarities between Iskandar Muda and Iskandar Tani, for example, in terms of depicting themselves as the owner of elephants and horses, a lot of material emphasis on the wealth and the charisma and the powers. Whereas if you look at the letters of Sultana Safiya Tudin, quite a number of the things that she omitted, there were about five characteristics that she omitted from her letter. And these five characteristics were all pertaining to the material wealth and the prowess of the leader. Instead, I mean, she added new characteristics uh, of describing herself. And then it was more in terms of how she would rule, you know, how she would try to deliver God's laws, for example, how she would be, in, in a way, a vicegerent of God, but not as sort of a representative of God, not, not sort of that divine kind of understanding, but more as a servant of God, and you have to look after the welfare of the people. But to say that somehow this could be a gendered style of leadership, I think that's still a question mark. <laughs> because of course, there are pious sultans, of course, there are really sort of Amazon-like female rulers who were aggressive and who were warlike as well. So it, it, I'm not saying that those characteristics would um, necessarily gender the style of leadership. you know. But from these case studies, very specific, I'm really looking at specific particular case studies, you may have resonance from that. And to add to that, I mean, there's not much study, but with the few studies that there are out there, like, for example, the Begums of Bhopal. And Professor Bradley had done a little bit on the Patani queens. If you compare female leadership or sultanas, you could see that the characteristic of piety 
the use of moral capital, the sort of ethics of care, you can say in terms of empathy. Okay, if you look at recent, most studies, they, they would say something like transformational type of leadership as opposed to the transactional sort of more masculine type of leadership. These women seem to illustrate this type of characteristics. So it could be quite sort of distinct in that sense. But to really say gender leadership, I think I think more research needs to be done, more comparative mm-hmm. evidences need to be weighed to really see whether it is gender. And I, I think it's really interesting. I just want to pick up on one aspect that you mentioned earlier about uh, piety. And I think part of having a sort of pious personality is also part of the Sultana's uh, charisma. And it's interesting in the book how he was accepted not just as Sultana, but also as um, Khalifa, I think, among the, the elite in Aceh. And since Islam is popularly considered to be rather unfriendly to female leadership, at least um, in some views, so how did Aceh's sovereign present themselves as Islamic leaders and how effective was their presentation? I think there is a popular conception that Islam is anathema to female leadership, female rule. In fact, I think if you look at a certain orientation of Muslims, the more patriarchal um, understanding of uh, Islam and leadership, uh, there would be a group who would say, oh, you know, uh, Islam actually uh, forbids women from leadership positions. But that would be just one orientation. And I think we need to understand Islam in a bigger context where, whereby you know, um, there are many orientations, whereby there are many interpretations of the role of men, the role of women, and the, the criteria of leadership. Generally, uh, in my book, if you look at Southeast Asia, the role of women and uh, status of women were quite quite distinct. And this is if you look at Antonyrit study, Babylonian study, for example, uh, women were taking part in diplomacy, in in, in the economy, uh, even in in you know in, in warfare. Perhaps the political culture tradition of sort of Southeast Asia at that time did not disallow or was in a way not really seen as exceptional that if you have sort of a woman, you know, uh, being in a higher position, for example. Coming back to Islam, I think it is also about how much Islam was interpreted at that time, at that context. If you look at the famous ulama Abdul Rauf al-Sinkil and also al-Raniri, who, was, uh, who had written the Bustan and who praised the Sultana in, in the Bustan al-Salatin, the interpretation of Islam here did, certainly did not forbid women from being leaders. So I think you need to really understand, you know, sort of maybe a perhaps one orientation of, of Islam in terms of forbidding it, but also there would be many other interpretations in terms of how women are being understood using the Islamic lens in terms of being able to uh, be leaders. And generally how Islam was interpreted, very much depended on the stakeholders of that time. And that was, in a way, how uh, women were seen, you know, uh, by sort of the Muslims and the ulama uh, in Aceh, that it was not forbidden 
it was not in fact a gendered thing because to them, if you look at the Taju Salatin, for example, they were quite different from mainstream ideas of what were the criteria of leadership. So if you look at Al-Mawardi, for example, they would, even Al-Ghazali to a certain extent, would cite manliness as a criteria for leadership. You know, manliness in terms of being able to go to wars so on and so forth. But if you look at Malay Muslim conception here of leadership, if you look at the Hikayat, for example, it is more in terms of your manners. It's not because of your gender, you know, it's how how you how you behave, you know, how you're able to help the subjects, for example. You know, so being well mannered and and being of course a Muslim would be the criteria, but not so much a gendered kind of criteria in terms of how to be or whether you could be a leader or not. And I think here again, if you look at Islamic history, there had been women who ruled. Not as many as in Southeast Asia. And that's very interesting because this is where I think the adats and the political culture in terms of the role of women here would play a part in terms of understanding uh, Islam and understanding adat and the and the acceptance of women as rulers. But even in the past, if you look at the cartoons in Mongolia, and if you look at, let's say, uh, Yemen, for example, although not very numerous, but there were occasions of women being sovereigns. Their names were mentioned in the khutbah, and their names were minted on the coins, and these were the signs of sovereigns. So if you look at Islamic history, and if you look at that part of Islamic history, and the orientation and the understanding that, you know, leadership did not necessarily be forbidden to women, uh, then you'll be able to understand, you know, even here in Islam and the, the context whereby these women, you know, were able to be accepted as legitimate sovereign uh, with the adat and, you know, with the culture and with the individual Islam by the ulama uh, in this part of the region, then her leadership was not only not accepted, but I mean, not only forbidden, but it was accepted as legitimate, and she was seen as a sovereign in, in her own right. Yeah, I think she was, uh, I think for Sultana Zafetirin, particularly, she was also particularly placed in uh, having to navigate a, a period of Achilles history where there was factionalism among different religious elites. And um, could you tell us a bit about how she managed this sort of religious conflict? Yeah, I think the 17th century was a time when there were different religious orientations uh, in in Aceh. Uh, and of course, uh, it was not only during the time of the Queen. Uh, it was something that uh, she uh, inherited. And that was what happened during the time of her father and also uh, her husband. So there was the contestation and conflicts between the more sort of mystical understanding of Islam as illustrated by the group with Hamza Fansuri, for example, and Hamzuddin Sumatrani. And then you have another, you could say, the more orthodox, legalistic understanding of Islam as represented by Al-Raniri. And there was a clash between Al-Raniri and Hamzuddin Sumatrani's supporters and that brought about a lot of bloodshed during the time of Iskandar Muda. What I suggest was the involvement of the sultans in terms of supporting one faction against the other 
and politicizing that religious debates and orientations was very negative and politically unstable for Pache you know, because because that was something that that was really remembered in terms of how Raniri uh, persecuted Shamsuddin Sumatrani's faction. During the Sultanah's period, there was a possibility of this happening because with the return of another ulama, Fakul Rijal, uh, the Dutch sources reported that quite a number of the Orangkaya wanted to have him as the Sheikh al-Islam instead of Araniri. So there was this sort of coming again of a competition between Araniri and his supporters and Fakul uh, Rijal and his supporters. But what the Queen did was, interestingly, not to get involved in these religious debates. She sort of stayed away and I would say did not politicize this factional struggle by supporting one against the other. So it was more of a, you know, um, the Orangkaya finally like, perhaps almost like a consensus, or at least a majority opinion that, you know, uh, they would rather appoint Shaikhul Rijal, you know, as the Sheikh of Islam. But still, she had to have the last say. And here, this is very interesting, that's why, you know, generally I said that she was sovereign because in most of the debates, and most of the audience days, after this kind of moshawara, which was encouraged during audience days, the last day was the Queen's. So she would step in and say, okay, yes, she would agree to this and, you know, and then they would end up by saying daulat, you know, that yes, you know, that uh, the Queen had that say. So the lack of this involvement, you know, and supporting one faction against the other and politicizing the religious debate, staying away from this would be one way of of dealing with this and that helped in establishing that kind of peace and in a way avoiding this kind of religious conflicts you know uh, in Aceh as happened uh, during the period of we have talked about the rise of the female sovereigns in Aceh and the way in which they also derive uh, religious support and legitimacy in the context of this story how can we think or rethink about the, uh, is the role of Islam in maritime Southeast Asia, is it a special region in the in the Islamic world or do we need to move away from thinking about different binaries, for example, moderate fundamentalists or um, factions that appear so would, um, when people talk about Islam in the region? When you talk about Islam and Muslims, there's always complexities and, you know, different orientations. And I think these different orientations exist even in the past and now. So it's quite difficult to say, you know, okay, at this time, you know, it's, it's, it's not sort of in a linear span. It's always, this is different orientations exist most of the time. It's, it's only that perhaps certain orientations become more dominant, you know, depending on the context, depending on the politics, on the power that we see at times. But I hope when we look at the past, when we look at the political, historical tradition of Muslims and the fact that Muslims have interpreted Islam in a very capacious manner, uh, have interpreted uh, uh, Islam not in a sort of a very uh, patriarchal or gendered manner, but to look at, let's say, for example, leadership, uh, you know, in, in a different sense, 
uh, not in in the patriarchal understanding of that women are forbidden to rule. I think these episodes uh, in Islamic history in Aceh and also in in this part of the region where where there was a preponderance of uh, female rulers who were accepted. Not only female rulers, but there were female who took part in the nationalist movement. Uh, for example, Chunyat Den, who also fought in the Aceh war against the Dutch. I think this could serve as very important examples that could perhaps make us understand the, the present, you know, and, and also how this kind of uh, episodes in history can also serve the future in terms of how do you understand Islam? How, how do you interpret Islam? And what is the role of women in Islam? I think uh, Aceh and the history of Aceh where women uh, have been uh, in power and are still having strong uh, positions, you know, despite Sharia law and all that, uh, would serve as a very important examples that this understanding of Islam uh, exists. That is what makes this particular um, study especially valuable, I think, in highlighting uh, the empirical basis in which we can um, draw this picture. And um, coming back, I think, to that empirical basis, what is your most surprising find in the archives when you're researching this book? There were many surprises. I was getting to the sources with the understanding that, okay, why were these women weak? So what were the things that happened that made them weak? But the, the, the sources actually reveal a different story that, you know, you know they were quite critical in terms of balancing the factions in, in, in Aceh at court, you know, accommodating the Dutch, dealing with the Dutch and so on and so forth. So those were quite surprising. And, and that was in itself important. I mean, they didn't set out to, to challenge this and therefore wanted to show, you know, it, it was a surprise find that, you know, the women were doing this. And in that sense, you should revisit and question the whole idea about, you know, women being responsible for the decline. And, you know, just because they were women, you know, there's this idea that they had to be figureheads or that they were weak. You know, the empirical uh, data uh, showed otherwise. So that was a surprise find. But another thing that really struck me and uh, sort of, in a way, I hold on the uh, principle or philosophy of the Sultana, which I suppose reflected her personality and the values and all that. But there's this, uh, you know, very striking bit in the letter which is sent to a Dutch governor, uh, which in a way, not just talking about the war and all that, but she was almost sort of advising him and giving like a sermon to him by saying that, okay, you know, you should remember two things. You should remember God and you should remember death. Uh, you should forget two things. You should forget all the bad things that people do to you and you should forget the good things that you do to people. And only that, you know, only with that, that your conscience will remain pure and calm. Right, and that is a nice note to end up on since you have taken so much of your time you. and you have shared so much inspiring findings I from so. your book. Yes. Um, so thank you very much, Professor Sherbanuhan. It was a pleasure to have you um, joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your monograph, Sovereign Women in a Muslim Kingdom, The Sultanas of Aceh, 1641-1699, published by Cornell University Press in 2018. And you have been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do check out our other episodes and join in another time. Thank you.